Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to Off the Wall. Jessica, it's good to see you again. I'm excited about this episode. Yeah, so am I. Because today, instead of having a guest, we've got one of our team members here, Ro Pignani, who is on the asset management team here at Monument. And started here actually when COVID started. So I think this is like actually your third day in the office in the past year, maybe. But yeah, uh, give or take. Yeah. So we're we're breaking in our new podcast room here at Monument. And Jessica is of course still in Texas, but we're excited to talk today about dividends. Mm, yes, everybody beautiful. loves some dividends. And Ro, it's one of your passions. It's something that I remember you talking about the very first day I met you. And You've just got a lot of knowledge and insight and thought on dividends. And it's a really, really interesting topic because we've already talked about bonds on this podcast once. And of course, everybody loves to talk about bonds. They're so exciting. But let's see if we can make dividends just as exciting as bonds. Sure. Dividends to me represent one of the lesser discussed topics in investing. And so I'm really looking forward to diving into the topic with, with you both today. Jessica, what do we got for like our first, our first intro question with Roe? What softball are we going to throw on the dividend topic? Let's start at the beginning. What is a dividend? It's a great question because a lot of people confuse a dividend with a coupon, which is, I know we've talked about bonds and, and done that on a previous podcast with Aaron, our other teammate. A coupon is really just cash flow from a promise, whereas a dividend is actually excess profit or excess cash flow returned to a shareholder. It's a percentage of the profits of a company. And it can come from two forms. It can either come from extra money they made that year as an ongoing business or from retained earnings. So they may have had a tough year this year, but they had extra cash in the bank and decided to pay that out in the form of a dividend. So it sounds like to me, whereas with a coupon, it could be potentially the same over the life of a bond or a note or something. Dividends potentially, though, tell me if I'm wrong, could grow over time if a company is doing well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's one of the biggest distinctions is when you step back, coupon payments are typically fixed. I mean, there's some instruments out there where coupon payments can fluctuate, but dividends tend to go up alongside the profitability of a company. And in fact, part of what I want to unpack today is the difference between a company that simply pays a dividend versus a company that grows a dividend. There's actually an enormous difference in investing between focusing on companies that solely pay a dividend versus companies that grow a dividend. And actually, we'll get into it later on, but there's a lot of data that indicates that companies that grow dividends, historically, the share price grows at least as fast as they're growing the dividend or higher. So it's a great harbinger of good things to come. It's a great signal. If you believe in signaling theory, it's a great signal for management to tell the market, the marketplace and market participants that we are continuing to do well and our forward guidance in terms of a cash on cash return, not just an optimistic forecast of earnings or cash flow, but the actual cash that we're going to be distributing out is growing. Yeah. And there's three different terms that people use that can be misinterpreted or misapplied, but they all, to an investor, they look like the same thing, which is actual dollars going into your account, right? So if you took $100 and you put it into, well, not today, but 
in the past, you put into a savings account, let's just say, put $100 in, and the savings rate, the interest rate on that savings account was 2%. After a full year, you would have $2 of interest. Okay, so physically got $2 from the bank as interest. That's interest. And then there's coupons, and that is money that comes in from the actual person who borrowed the money from you. It's also cash into your account, so it looks very similar. It has an interest rate, except it's called a yield or a coupon payment. And again, if the bond is yielding 2%, then you would get $2 at the end of the year for $100 you put in. Then there's dividends, which has nothing to do with how much money really you put into something. You're actually owning a stock, but the cash that's coming in looks exactly the same as the $2 of interest or the $2 of yield. It looks the same because it's $2 that comes into your account, but it's actually a dividend, which is a return of cash flow that is a function of profitability of the actual company. Right. And if we go one level deeper, Dave, that was a great comment, great insight on types of cash flow because most people don't distinguish between them. Dividends, unlike a coupon payment, as I mentioned, can grow over time. And so once you're trying to focus on with the dividend paying stock, and we'll get more into this, but with the dividend paying stock is, has it been growing that dividend? With a coupon, it's fixed as we talked about. So coupons literally represent, like you said, it's payment for going and doing something more profitable. But from an equity standpoint, you're a part owner of the business and you're participating in the growth of that business. Right. And let's let's just clarify the math too on the dividend because a savings account and a bond, that $2 is unlikely to change in the amount. Like it's going to be $2 all the time. And then so if you do the math and you take $2 divided by the $100 you put in, you get 2%. That's your, right. But with a dividend the denominator of that equation isn't the amount of money you put into it. It's the price of the stock. So you'll hear things like the dividend is yielding 5%. Well, that means that it's paying a $5 dividend and the stock is trading at $100. That would mean a 5% dividend yield. And you could go ahead and buy that stock at $100 today. And if the stock price goes up, the yield will come down. So it's the price of the stock that moves that makes a yield actually move up and down on a dividend stock. So there's two things. There's the amount of cash flow that you're getting as a dividend, and then there's the yield, and the yield changes daily based on the stock price. That's correct. Yeah, right. well said. Yeah. So just a little nuance because people will tend to not understand yielding and the actual dividend dollar amount. The dividend dollar amount will change over time. And that's the part we want to launch into, which is Dividends are great because you want to find companies that increase that dividend from $5 to $6 to $7 every single year. So before we go into the actual individual dividend paying stocks, I want to just to keep it high level at the start, I want to start by, I think you're going to say, yes, people should have dividend paying stocks as part of their portfolio. So, you know, why is it important to have dividends as part of your portfolio and in particular, why is this dividend growth that we're talking about? Why is this so important, both for people in general? But you know, when I hear dividends, I think about income, and when I think about income from a portfolio, I think about retirees, and also you know, founders who have sold, you know, or successfully exited their business and are now relying on a portfolio. So you know, why are dividends important, both in general, but particularly for people that are relying on income from their portfolio? It's a great question, Jessica. Thank you for asking it. So what's interesting about dividends is 
I think they get a bad rap sometimes. People think of dividend companies or dividend growth companies as the old expression on Wall Street was widows and orphans, right? And the other way people tend to think about dividend companies is they're old economy companies. They're not like Amazon or Snap or, or Shopify or some of, the, some of the hotter stocks of the last few years. What's very interesting about that is that the data doesn't support that idea. And so I'm actually looking at data right now from Ned Davis Research. If you look at the S&P back to 1973, the total return of the S&P geometric equal weighted was 8.1% over that period. This is through two weeks ago, through July 1st. What's so interesting is they take the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 and break them into five categories. The first is dividend growers and initiators. So if you're paying and raising the dividend versus just dividend payers. So a typical dividend payer, when you don't think about a growth stock, like dividend growth stock, a typical dividend paying stock, most people tend to think of utilities and pipeline type companies where you get a nice cash flow, but it doesn't tend to grow over time. And then you have dividend cutters and non-dividend paying stocks. What's interesting about the companies that have initiated and grown a dividend, the total return there, again, this is since 1973 is 10.6% versus the S&P of 8.1. So that's a lot of data. Let's stop for a second and unpack that. I mean, this is really- First of all, that's per year. That's the average annual return. And so right there, you have this idea that if you are buying dividend growth stocks, you have this nice tailwind to likely ending up ahead of the benchmark, right? It doesn't say you're definitely going to be in those specific stocks that end up being ahead of the S&P, but you really have stacked the odds in your favor. Why? I think is the more interesting question. There's only two ways to make money in the stock market. People seem to get lost in all the different strategies and theories that are out there. There's only two ways. The stock you buy goes up in price or the stock pays a dividend. If you were to go back even further and disaggregate the data in the S&P 500, roughly 44% since 1930, roughly 44% of all the money you made buying and holding the index has come from dividends. So why is that? Take the decade of 2000 to 2010 where you had a negative total return on the S&P. Well, dividend investors at least got those checks along the way. So dividends do represent, and to, to the first part of Jessica's question, which I think I heard two or three questions, so I may kind of bounce around a little bit, but why are dividends important? It does represent a significant part of how you make money in the market. We really don't need to make it more complex than that. To go a level deeper, why should, I think the next question was, why should people have exposure to it? As I said, it's a great tailwind to being in line or ahead of the index. I think the last part, and, and let me go finish that data actually, because I, I find that pretty interesting is that all dividend-paying stocks was 9.5. So remember, dividend growth was 10.6. If you include the utilities and pipeline-type companies, it's 9.5. If you had dividend cutters or eliminators, which they broke out that category, you lost money. So that's a nice red flag, a nice sell discipline, right? And the non-dividend-paying stocks was only 4.8%. Say that last part again, non-dividend-paying stocks. So again, let me back up a little bit. The data set we're looking at is within the S&P 500. So... There's some stocks that are not in the S&P 500 that have done very well. Tesla comes to mind, even though it was just added last year, had a nice 12-year run going into the S&P. But within the S&P 500, if you bought the non-dividend paying stocks, your return was 4.8%. Unbelievable. Half that of the total return of the S&P 500. So pretty unbelievable. Now, some people say that it doesn't include stocks like Tesla and Amazon before it was added, which is very true. From a portfolio manager's perspective, that means you also need to have exposure outside of the S&P 500. This isn't the only. When you're fishing in the pond of the S&P 500, the two conclusions I think we can draw from the data is first, you have a dividend bias within the S&P 500. And within that dividend bias, demand, for lack of a better word, growth of that dividend. 
you do those two things, you've put yourself in your portfolio in a very high probability position of doing very well. Yeah. And it's funny because over time, what I've noticed about people's perspective as it relates to dividends is they buy stocks and the dividend is almost like, a, oh, that's also nice, right? It's almost an afterthought. It's a, hey, I bought this great stock and it pays a dividend. I want to unpack that. I've done a lot of research on this topic and read extensively on and talked to a lot of folks. I think the logic, I think that's the experience that clients have and, and market participants have. I think you need to invert that though, because I think what really is happening here is that the dividend itself are why those companies do well. Okay, what does that mean? It was a weird statement, right? If you as a management team are paying a dividend, it means that you're very efficient allocators of capital with the rest of your money. So if you have to spend 40 or 50% of your profits, a dividend payout ratio, right, of 50%, you can only be pursuing the highest return on invested capital projects with the remaining 50 cents on the dollar of profits. It makes these management teams, these companies so much more efficient. Okay, let me give you a tangible example because it still felt a little abstract. Take a non-dividend paying stock that's done very well, Amazon, right? Instead of paying a dividend, they funneled into R&D. They're trying to send people to space. They're trying to launch drone projects. That's been working for them for now, but at some point, investors are going to demand a dividend from all that extra cash flow that they're producing. So dividends, it's not nice to get. It's because you get them, the stocks have done really well. Yeah. It's also people who are listening remember back when Apple didn't pay a dividend. All of a sudden, I mean, it's also if a company is collecting so much cash but can't find anything to reinvest that cash into, like R&D or something else like that, or the amount of R&D that they're doing, they're investing it and they still have a ton of cash, that's going to prompt dividend paying too. But that all comes back to a well-run company that's earning revenue and, and has a great product. If they're selling, if they're generating revenue, that cash is collecting. Here's a good way of thinking about it for everybody that has kids, right? You got mom and or dad is working. And so you've got revenue coming in the house from the paycheck. You got all of your expenses like rent, food and clothing, everything else. And then you got the kid who wants the allowance. Right. So like the kid's not going to get a good allowance unless the household's being run well and mom and dad are making money and the household's running well and then there's some money. And then if the kid doesn't get the allowance, he gets he gets mad. That's like when investors, when they see dividends go away, they see dividends get reduced. If the kid's got a $20 a week allowance, it goes down to 15 because the internals of the household aren't being run well. You got an angry kid on your hands. How's that? Perfect. Not bad, well right? Said, yeah. right? Dave on the fly hey, with, there we with go. an analogy, right? right. You don't, don't want, even have kids. You don't want an angry investor. Right. Exactly. You don't uh, want the angry investor. There was a lot of stuff there that we kind of didn't give its due attention. I want to answer the last part of what I think Jessica's question was is why is it so important for retirees and for business owners? Well, because current income matters. It matters in the world. I think the biggest and most ancient battlefield in investing is the dichotomy between growth and income. And I think dividend growth investing can, can merge those two. The world used to be, well, if I need income, it was by bonds. If I need growth, buy equities. What's very interesting, and this is particularly true of the last seven, eight years in a world where the Fed has dropped interest rates, you can have an income higher than bonds right now yeah. and get all that growth. Right? So we're at this sort of golden moment in dividend investing over the last sort of seven to 10 years. Outside of that, it still reigns true, right? We just went over data since 1973. And so for retirees... I'll answer it first for retirees. For retirees, dividends historically have outpaced inflation. That's huge, right? Since 1931, since 1930 in the S&P, the historical growth rate of the S&P dividend has been about 5.8%. 
retirees' biggest challenge is outliving their portfolio. How would they outlive their portfolio is because they're spending more, not because they've had lifestyle creep, but because the things that they're buying are going up in price, right? Inflation. So for retirees, having their cash flow stream tied to inflation via dividends is a huge advantage. Jessica's a planner. She can probably chime in here. That will change the plan, the probability of a client success if they're meeting their cash flow needs without dipping into corpus, right. without touching the principal. The inverse of that is if a retire, I'm going to make a really extreme example here. If a retiree retires today and they go out and buy a 30-year bond, let's just use 10-year, 10-year bond at 1.5%. So for every $100, they're going to get $1.50 every single year in coupon payments for 10 years. That's not going to change. Fast forward 10 years or even fast forward six months from now with the inflation rate that we just saw printed at around 5%, that $1.50 isn't going to go as far. But with a dividend stock, you have a higher likelihood of that dividend keeping up with inflation. With a dividend growth stock. Growth stock, I yeah. want to make sure we, because this is the whole thing. So it's interesting is that you're a seasoned professional and conflating the two, I think, is what most of the literature and most market participants do. So I think it's really important for the remainder of this discussion, to create that dichotomy between between a dividend stock and a dividend growth stock. You know, take a stock, I mean, it's iconic because of of its dividend growth rate. So it's a nice, nice example. But, you know, Coca-Cola has paid and raised a dividend for approximately 62 years. Okay, no big deal unless I tell you the growth rate, the compound annual growth rate of that dividend since initiating it has been about 9.2%. Annually, on average, Right, so last year was a little bit lower. I believe it was three point three, but most people in their working lives aren't getting nine point two percent raises annually, right? So you can get that from your dividend growth stocks. I almost made the same, <laughs> right? From your dividend from your dividend growth stocks. And so, well, Ro, I'll do better. I promise. I appreciate that. <laughs> but to Jessica's point for retirees, I think even in a normal interest rate environment, your point I think Dave was one point five. Even if we make that example four four and a half percent. Right. You buy a 10-year bond, you give the example of 1.5%, let's make it 4%. So almost triple the yield. It sounds great. I mean, if the 10-year got to 4%, we have some different issues in the market from an intermarket structure perspective. But 10 years from now, you're still just getting $40 for every 1000 so $4 for every 100 Whereas with the dividend growth stock, you've likely, even if you started a lower yield, you've likely gotten that same $4 and then grown it thereafter. And so that's so important for your asset liability matching from a retiree's perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. And I don't think people think about it like that. Yeah, Jessica, I'm sorry. How do you find and screen for these dividend growth stocks that you're talking about? Great question. Um, There's different categories of dividend growth stocks. There's categories based on duration or length that a company has paid and raised a dividend. So I'll go in order from the shortest amount of time to the longest, right? The longest being rarefied air. So dividend achievers, you can just Google this for anybody listening and wanting to learn more and kind of dig in. If you Google dividend achievers, those are companies that have paid and raised a dividend for 10 years. Dividend aristocrats are companies that have paid and raised a dividend for 25 years. And dividend kings are companies that have paid and raised a dividend for 50 years. Okay, so achievers, 10. Aristocrats, 25. Kings, 50. 50. And I believe, and I'm getting rusty, but I believe there's only 23 or 24 dividend kings, with the most recent one being added last week. 
CSVI, Computer Service Corporation of America. In that Dividend King list are some of the most iconic names in American business. Coca-Cola, the example we already gave. Hormel, right? Peanut butter and bacon aren't going out of style, right? <laughs> that has paid and raised a dividend for, for that long. Not as long as I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not based on what's in yeah. the fridge at, yeah. at Monument Wealth, but certainly. Emerson Electric, which is sort of the backbone to the energy infrastructure industry that kind of a lesser known company, but huge within the walls of corporate America. So those are the three categories. So to Jessica's question, for most folks at home, just Googling those different indices and getting to know them is where it's a good place to start. So why wouldn't somebody just go out and say, okay, fine, I'm just going to buy every single dividend King stock done. Yeah, I, I would never problem with that. I think if someone did that, they'd have a very good probability of having not just good, solid passive income, but growing passive income. Now I'm going to put on my portfolio manager hat and take off my obsessed dividend person hat. The dividend King sort of rarefied air, that universe tends to be clustered in just a few sectors. So it wouldn't be broadly diversified, right? You tend not to find companies, like a lot of tech companies, one, because they didn't exist 50 years ago. (laughs) And second of all, only until recently did the tech sector begin to initiate dividends. So you wouldn't have a broadly diversified portfolio. You'd have a lot of consumer staples, as I mentioned, Coca-Cola, Kimberly-Clark, McCormick, right? Spices, things that are part of our, our everyday life. So one downfall to just focusing on dividend kings is you wouldn't have a proper sector diversification. Okay. How about, what is the likelihood of a dividend king, since it is a dividend king, right? 50 years, kind of steady Eddie keeps, right? Is it probable that the total return or just the price return of the stock will be a little bit muted by that? Is it a, the higher somebody gets up in the dividend classification towards King, do they become a little bit more price stable than say buying a dividend aristocrat who's still trying to get to 50 years and may actually still be growing their company? So you're getting some stock appreciation along with the dividend appreciation as well. It's an interesting question in that I heard two different questions. So help guide me a little bit, Dave. You mentioned price stability versus growth. What's interesting about the dividend phenomenon, the factor of income of dividends, is that dividend-paying stocks historically lose less. So when you said stable, that's what I thought of. And I think of 2008 as an interesting example. We all know the 07 to 09 recession or crash in the market was a 52%, 51.8 to be precise, decline in the market. 2008 itself was 30% for the S&P. For dividend aristocrats, it was only about 195 to 20%. So stability, I think the first part of what you're asking, dividend growth stocks historically are more stable. You have less of a price shock in those things. I think the second part of the question, and I'm not sure if this is what you meant, but the total growth rate of those dividend kings, yes, they tend to be a little bit more mature and they lag on the way up. Yeah, that was it was the second part that I was asking. The first part makes total sense, but... The second part's really fascinating because it seems to contradict something we discussed just 10 or 15 minutes ago of this idea that dividend growers are 10.6, but I just said they historically can lag on the way up. So how do you have that kind of outperformance? And I'm testing my teammates here at Monument. How do you outperform and have streaks of underperformance? Well, it's got to be an average. It's because you lost less. It's the first part of what we just discussed, right? I mean, we all know the asymmetry of returns in markets in that if you've lost 50%, you need to get 100% to go back, right? But if you've lost 20%, you only need 25% to get back to even. So 
what's really interesting, and this goes back to the retirees question and the business owners question is it takes less appreciation to get back to even and then ultimately compound. I'm going to quote back to Dave here. Is don't risk something. What is the quote you always? It's don't have what you have and need for something you don't have and you don't need. So I think dividend growth investing, you know, to kind of summarize what we've talked about, it's no longer a real choice. It's a false dichotomy to say, I need growth or income. You get to have both. And we've proven that with hard data and experiential data in terms of what happened in 08. And I think the last seven years and probably the next three, four, five until interest rates come back to long-term norms, it's kind of an easier choice for people to make. You have to consume some volatility. I don't want to you know, make it seem like it's a panacea, but it's a pretty close to a layup as you can get right now in the world of, of equity investing. Yeah, it is funny. I'm reflecting back on when I first came into business and let's just, let's just talk about business school. And you hear people talk about growth investing, value investing just in the equity space. And I would always associate value investing with buying dividend paying stocks that, you know, you're, I associate that with value investing, but you're right. I think a better way to look at it, another way to look at it is dividend growth stocks don't necessarily fit in the bucket of either it's a growth stock or it's a value stock. It's kind of in both of them. Right. I know we certainly don't as a firm monument, but I do believe the industry at large does feel the need to classify things in a specific way. It's either growth or value. Like a Morningstar nine style box kind of thing. Right. right. And I think, I don't think the retiree hitting their checks from us really cares, candidly, if it was a growth, did that check come from a growth stock or a value stock? Right. Your check came and it's higher than it was last year. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got a raise. Right. You got a raise and, and you got a raise because you took equity risk. And this, why did I say that? Because you took equity risk. That is the difference from your very first comment of the interest-bearing account versus the coupon, right? Neither of those take equity risk, so you don't get a raise. Because you took equity risk, you'll get a raise year over year. So I'm going to preface that I don't like this question, but I'm going to ask it because I have a feeling listeners are, are thinking about it. And it's how do you benchmark dividend growth? And the word there that I don't love is benchmark, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So Ro, what do you think? No, that's a great question. I'm, I'm going to give a cheat answer first from personal experience. I've been in the business almost 20 years. We didn't do much on my background, but you can jump onto our website and kind of take a look at some of the things I was doing before Monument. I really don't look at how my stocks have performed and I haven't for maybe 12 or 13 years, but each month I do log into my account. And I pull an Excel file of the passive cash flow off my portfolio. In a well-constructed dividend growth portfolio, you should get a raise every single month because you have 20 to 30 stocks, each with a different dividend pay date. And if that line for, I'm going to use a big finance term here, goes from the bottom left to the upper right of the graph, <laughs> you're going to be okay. <laughs> and so I really benchmark it against the liabilities that are my lifestyle. I know a big thrust of the podcast and something Jessica is very passionate about is what are the uses of wealth? Why do we seek it? What are we trying to achieve? The point of wealth to me is to underwrite a meaningful life and having cash flow to do that is very important. I don't care if I beat the market or not. I care that I can meet my expenses. And to your example, Dave, I can pay the allowance to my kids, <laughs> right? And, and so for me, that's why I, I love this style of investing. From a benchmark perspective, to answer the question more directly without being you know, cute, I don't think there is a really good benchmark because most benchmarks are price return oriented, not experiential, not lifestyle oriented. 
but we have the data. We've gone over it in that you're still more likely to beat the market with a dividend growth bias. The challenge there is over what time frame. We have to go one level deeper. What most people don't realize about Uncle Warren Buffett is that he's actually a big-time dividend growth investor. American Express, Coca-Cola, go down his list. Eight of his top 10 public holdings are dividend aristocrats. It was actually a higher number than that, but Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank suspended their dividends in 08 and were taken from that list. But Warren Buffett can go, I think he's now on his 11th year in a row without outperforming, but he's outperformed for a very long time. So to answer your question, Jessica, I don't know an appropriate benchmark, but I, I think it is the S&P over a very long period of time. I think that's fair. But I mean, you need to think long term. You got to play the long game for this style of investing. Yeah. I think you could also benchmark it against, okay, what can I get for a riskless asset? Like what is the spread between what I'm going to be yielding on a stock and what I could be getting in a riskless asset like the 10-year treasury? I mean, that's one way to look at it. But I like the idea that you were saying, and I just want to expand on that a tiny bit more because even though it's not completely related to dividend, I think it's related to a behavioral mindset that people need to be aware of when they're evaluating dividends and it is benchmarking it against the utility of the money, right? So like, I've also like to say money and your wealth isn't a piece of art to be looked at every single day and admired. It's to provide utility and that utility is to be able to do what you want when you want to. And if you are able to do what you want, when you want to, with the money that you're making in your investment, in your portfolios, and your dividends, then it's almost irrelevant what the benchmark is or how well you're doing. In other words, who cares how well your portfolio is? I'm taking an extreme example, but who cares how well your portfolio is doing if the utility of your wealth is funding what you want to do and when you want to do it? It's almost irrelevant to benchmark it. It doesn't make it an unworthy exercise. I'm just saying, I don't think people should really get hung up on benchmarking things vis-a-vis an equity index like the S&P 500. In other words, are you a failure if you make enough money to be able to do what you want when you want and underperform the S&P 500? Are you a failure? I don't think so. Of course not. Exactly. And, and that's what I think is the biggest, there's a lot here and I'm actually going to kind of unpack this. That is the biggest advantage clients have over professional money managers, over mutual fund managers, right? I spent the first 70 years of my life in money management, not wealth management, right? I worked at a 40-act fund and I've worked at a hedge fund. And every 91 days, like clockwork, you got the return of the S&P staring at you, right? Whereas as a client of a wealth manager from, or running a wealth management shop like we do, we have both lifestyle and time arbitrage on our side. And that's really what you were saying. And I also think about that question a little bit differently. I think about execution a lot as a portfolio manager. I'm taking off my just dividend student hat and putting on my day job hat back on. And if you're going to get a a higher total return from growth stocks, why not just do that? Well, one, growth stocks historically haven't outperformed dividend growth stocks, but the last five years have skewed a lot of people's perception, right? Amazon, Netflix, Google, go down the list. What I find most interesting about that is it's a question of decision sciences. It's a question of heuristics in that when you're selling a non-dividend portfolio to create yield, to create income, you have to make several decisions that you don't have to make with the, with the dividend growth stock. You have to, one, decide what to sell. Are you going to sell your winner or your loser? The best investors let their winners run. If you're selling your winners, you're now taking away from your total return. 
You have to decide how much to sell and you decide when to sell. Those are three very hard decisions that the pros get wrong. And so for me, when I think about, I want to make the least amount of decisions as possible every day with the highest efficacy. That also swings me to this idea that maybe I beat, maybe I don't beat, but I'm still stacking the odds on my side. If you have a portfolio of 100% Amazon, you have made an incredible amount of money. But if you sold shares after the first, let's keep in mind, Amazon dropped 91% four months after its IPO, and it's had 350 plus percent declines. If you were selling to create cash flow during any of those periods, your total return was crushed. <laughs> so very interesting from a, the data tells you one thing, and then your point, Dave, about it's really about making your lifestyle come true that you want. And then from my perspective, the decision sciences behind it is mind boggling. I mean, you're telling me if I have a non-yielding portfolio, I got to go and I decide, okay, do I sell winners or losers? How much? When? To do that now, market timing, very challenging from my perspective to meet the way we touch money. Right. Conversely, you can just have a portfolio of dividend growing stocks and get a pay raise every single year. A portfolio anchored in dividend growth stocks. Thank you. <laughs> anchored. <laughs> so that's a good lead in actually to my next question, which was Bro, you've talked to us, you've explained dividend growth investing, you've explained the role that it plays in a portfolio including being one of the best hedges against inflation. So what are ways, if any, that investors could potentially even improve on all of this dividend growth investing that you've been talking about? That's an incredibly insightful question because I think everything we've discussed from the beginning of this of this session till now, an enterprising investor, an enterprising do-it-yourselfer can recreate. Actually, nothing we've done, I think, separates why I have a day job versus why someone else can be a hobbyist, for lack of a better word here. And actually, dividend growth is my second favorite phrase in finance. My favorite phrase is actually momentum. And so the heart of the question was, how can we improve upon dividend growth? What I believe separates or can separate professionals from do-it-yourselfers is momentum overlays. And I'm going to unpack that in a minute. But momentum is this phenomenon that sounds like a complex word, but we've all understood it from, from first grade, is what goes up tends to go up, continue to go up, right? This idea of self-reinforcing mechanisms. What do we call it on social media? I'm not on social media. People make fun of me, but I think it's called FOMO, right? The fear of missing out, this idea that you do something that someone else is doing. So momentum is called the golden anomaly in academic circles within investing because it turns out that the biggest myth is also the dirtiest secret on Wall Street. The biggest myth is buy low, sell high. Well, actually, it turns out if you buy in the middle and sell higher, you're going to do better. Let someone else put in the bottom in the stock. And so what we do, what separates, I believe, our approach from most of the other dividend growth investors is we will use momentum overlay. So we'll take that world. Let's use one of the examples from earlier, the dividend aristocrats, right? That's our 25-year pay and raise category. And we'll actually sort, filter, and rank the stocks, first and foremost, by its rate of ascent. Second, by the growth of its dividend, and third, by the growth of revenue and margin, margin expansion. So we'll actually go in and build a quantitative model around those individual stocks to harness those two phenomenon simultaneous, the joy and simplicity of dividend growth with this idea that markets streak. Momentum is just saying bull and bear. Markets are streaky. And so we combine the two. So how do you improve on it? You start with a well-thought-out idea of dividend growth. And then you take that professional overlay of momentum and try to approve upon it. Because we know when a stock underperforms, it tends to underperform for more than just a few quarters. 
it takes a company a few years to reorg, to assimilate its most recent M&A, to adapt to market changes. Whatever phenomenon you want to reverse ascribe to the loss of momentum, fine. We only want to be in things that are going up. I know it's so trite and an oversimplification, but Dave, myself, Aaron, and Dean on the asset management team, that's a big part of our philosophy is being the things that are going up. Yeah, right. And not only that, but an interesting thing about momentum is you can see it. You can download data. You can find momentum. It's not some weird thing that you can't see. It's literally embedded in price action. You can, you can see momentum. And all momentum is really saying is that if you take 100 stocks and they're all going up, they all have momentum, but some of them are going up faster than others. That's the momentum that we're looking for. Yes, and I, I think we should equip listeners to better understand this. There's a great, a few books on this. I'm well read on the topic of momentum, but one of them, is, there's a blog by Andreas Klenau, and I'm blanking on the blog right now, but he literally actually takes this idea of momentum, and he takes his last name, C-L-E-N-O-W, and only buys the S- stocks in the S&P whose tickers start with those letters and only buys them when they're trading above their 50-day moving average, only when they're exhibiting positive momentum. That portfolio beat the market. We're going to get you to remember that blog and we'll put it in the show notes for people who are listening. He then does it with his first name, he then allows readers of his blog to send in their name and does it. And it is pervasive. It shows that momentum is endogenous to the market, right? It's something that exists as a phenomenon that is playable in the market. Now, it's beyond the scope of this podcast and probably podcasting in general, but how you harness that, how you harvest that, right? That's, that's a big part of what we do in our, in our day jobs. But combining the two to answer Jessica's question, I think is a great way to ensure you're getting your checks. Those checks are going up and then you're avoiding the downfalls, right? Because I think the last part, why is momentum so important? Okay, maybe it's endogenous, maybe it's not, but either way, the biggest way we touch momentum in the market is actually, it tells us when to sell, right? When Bear Stearns lost price momentum, then they cut its dividend. Lehman Brothers, GE has cut its dividend twice in 12 years. Kinder Morgan, right? Once a dividend aristocrat. You can go down the Enron, go down the list of stocks that have gone from being sought after to in the waste bin. At some point along that decline, they lost their momentum. And that I think, Jessica, is the biggest difference between how a DIYer can harness this versus a you know, professional portfolio management team. So before we wrap up, because Ro, I know you're a big reader, in addition to the blog you mentioned, do you have any favorite books on this subject if listeners wanted to learn more about dividend growth? Yeah, quite a few. I think the one that's most accessible are books that that don't use a lot of jargon and that are short and simple. One of them is called Dividend Growth Machine by Nathan Winkelpeck. He promises you on the first page that you'll be able to read this book within 87 minutes, and it takes about that long. Uh, the pages are small, the font is huge, and he doesn't use jargon. It's awesome. <laughs> and it really just goes through a series of examples, stylized examples of if a retiree had X dollars, put it all in an index, what would happen using real data of historical data? What would happen if it was all fixed income? And what would happen if it was in dividend growth stocks? And the only scenario, oh, he actually also goes through a case study of what if you decided to leave Wall Street and annuitize it? And in those cases, using data, dividend growth gave you the highest probability of success in retirement. Yeah, he's also a fellow CFA. So the fact that he promises you can read something he wrote in 87 minutes is quite a unique feat in and of itself, I think. I wouldn't be able to write something that you could read in 87 minutes. 
And on the topic of momentum, since we're, we're talking about books, the author I mentioned, Andres Klenau, has two books on momentum, one on individual stocks and one using momentum on all asset classes, bonds, commodities, foreign exchange. That one's probably a little more esoteric, but if someone wanted to kind of begin to understand the concepts of dividend growth or momentum, those are two very accessible pieces of literature. We'll go ahead and put those full names and and some non-affiliated links maybe to them in Amazon down in our show notes so people can at least go research them if they want to. Just take 30 seconds and talk about how important it is to not only have a portfolio management strategy, whether it's buying dividend-growing stocks or just growth stocks, whatever it is, to have a sell discipline. And that's a loaded question because it's not a wrap-up question. That's a, that's a topic of another podcast down the road. But that being said, a sell discipline is what keeps you in this game. At the end of the day, <laughs> we focus so much on plus or minus 1% against the benchmark. What we don't see, what we don't hear are the legions of investors who either went under or just left what is a great asset class, right? Public equities is a phenomenal asset class over the very long term. The data is unequivocal, right? There have been, there's data for 122 rolling 10-year periods of data. And in only four of those instances, did you lose money on a rolling 10-year basis? There are no instances where you didn't have more money 20 years later, none. And so- one bad experience in 08, et cetera, will get people to leave what is a liquid, transparent, regulated, total return asset class. And so having a sell discipline allows you to stay in that asset class. And at the end of the day, that's what matters, right, is achieving freedom. I keep coming back to when Jessica was talking about the point of this podcast is to help us understand wealth and how to touch it, how to utilize it every day in our lives. To your art analogy, yeah, a sell discipline keeps you in the game and lets you enjoy compounding. Your sell discipline, to bring it back to this podcast, it can be as simple as if you don't want to get into momentum overlays and some of the more esoteric work, if a company cut its dividend, you're gone, out. If a company hasn't grown the dividend sufficiently, right, then you could sell. It can be what works for you, right? It doesn't necessarily have to work in an absolute sense. It just has to work for you. You could be a retiree who needs a 5% raise every year. And the stock that you own, one of the stocks that you own over the last three years, give them one year pass maybe because COVID and things like that happened. But if over the past three years, they only raised the dividend 2% a year, it doesn't fit what you're trying to do. That can be a sell discipline. Yeah. A sell discipline could be just, hey, they lowered their dividend. Gone. They didn't raise their dividend. Gone. I just think that one of the things that people always tend to focus in is security selection. And I just think it's always important to remind people that it's also about security deselection from time to time, right? Because I like to say it like this. Every investor, individual investor, not professional money manager, every single individual investor needs to have a mindset of what can I do to be financially unbreakable? And having a sell discipline is a huge component of that. So maybe you're right. Maybe we do need a second podcast on that. We'll- yeah, it makes us anti-fragile, right? To use Talib's Nassim's work. It keeps us in the game. It keeps us compounding. At the end of the day, the longer you compound, the better off you're going to be. I think it was one of our favorite books, Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel talks about how Warren Buffett has made, I think it's 86 or 90% of his wealth since age 65. I know, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable because you just you stayed in the game. <laughs> Actually, that's our next podcast. We should just get together and have a book club, a recorded book club. Talk about that book. It's really great. Well, hey, thanks a lot for spending the time with us and Jessica for putting this together. I think this was a great opportunity for us to introduce Roe to our clients and everybody that listens to it and and hear from a, a passionate expert on dividends and it's a fun topic and it's it's fun to watch you talk and get excited about a topic so 
I think we'll, with that, we'll wrap it up and we'll be back in a week or two with another episode of this. And Ro, we'll definitely like to have you on again. Be a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Ro.